Pameg Shasov, Herimelondoin. I'm standing on the edge of the world. For so it must have seemed to the men who dared to make this place their home, their place of penitence, their place of prayer almost 1,500 years ago. I'm standing on Skellig Vihi, this great fortress of rock, standing proudly against the wild Atlantic waves, some eight miles off the southwest coast of Kerry. A wild, unimaginably beautiful place that for roughly 500 years was a monastic settlement, the last outpost of Christianity in the then known world. It's a rugged, craggy, barren, dangerous place, Shkeligvihil, Yet, incredibly, it was inhabited by brave and saintly men for some five centuries. It's a sacred place. The stones of the Killeens, or beehive cells, sing out stories of sacrifice and serenity, of deprivation and devotion. It's a truly humbling place to find oneself a mere human speck on this great rock which is in turn a mere fleck in the vastness of the Atlantic Ocean. I am overwhelmed, fearful, and totally in awe of this beautiful, wild, sacred place. Hamea Rimelondoi. I'm on the edge of the world, on Skellig Rock, off the southwest coast of Kerry. The monastic settlement is some 180 metres above me, and it's a long climb up. But there are these wonderful steps, around 600 of them I've told, which take you up to the settlement. And again, one wonders at the toil that went into the cutting of these steps by men who lived here some 1,500 years ago. So we begin the ascent. It's a mild September morning. Birds are still around, though many of them have left now for warmer climbs. But to an extent, they own the rock. Particularly, little Skellig across from us here, which when you look across, look as if as somebody once described it, it has marble cliffs. But they are, in fact, the forty to fifty thousand gannets who live there. Second biggest gannet colony in the world. Climbing along now, walking along a little ledge. One is on one's way to heaven, almost. We've now reached the plateau about two-thirds of the way up. One final, very steep-looking flight of steps to climb. Over to our left, 
is the South Peak, the daunting South Peak. Must be a hundred meters above us now. But up there, out on a spit of rock, was the Hermitage, where a monk went to do penance and to live on his own. And there, as near as he could be to his God, he prayed and fasted and did penance. Now the birds own it, angrily squawking, soaring above in and out of the ledges. Rested and refreshed, I'll go and tackle the last hundred or so steps up to the monastic settlement. Feel I want to tread every step, even though you could skip one here and there. You just feel you want to walk the same way those monks walked so long ago. Pardon my breathlessness, but I'm nearly there. Not recommended if you don't have a head for heights. Sea is swirling and foaming beneath us. Birds squawking around us. I keep saying us, but it's really only me. But I feel I'm walking in the footsteps of others. I did this so long ago. the bare bones of, of the monastic village such as you see it now and for instance a large cell such as this one has remained virtually untouched as far as we know the tops of say these behind down among the beehive cells Dukas guide Bob Harris is introducing a group of visitors to Shkelik oratory here where the monks came in to worship together uh, the cells where they lived the cisterns where they caught water the outer terrace which was presumably guarded at some period the stairs running down to the sea so you can get a good feel for the monastic economy. And of course, it's all still in its original uh, natural setting, which is, of course, relatively unspoiled as well. They were looking for life in the wilderness, like I said, and of course they found it here. Um, they were following uh, very strong traditions, which came all the way across the Mediterranean world, had their roots in the first Christian monks that lived maybe about 200 years before this uh, in the deserts of Egypt and Palestine, Sinai. Uh, the so-called Desert Fathers, uh, people like St. Anthony and St. Paul who looked for this more pure spiritual life, if you will, in, in a place apart in the desert. Climbing into one of the small beehive cells. 
beautifully constructed. Reasonably dry. And there was some damp on the floor. In the ninth century, the monk wrote, Alone in my small cell, peace for company, blessed retreat before meeting with death. A very cold bed, fearful, like the sleep of a doomed man. Sleep short and restless, invocations frequent and early. Let this place shelter me, these holy walls, a spot beautiful and sacred, and I there alone. And the first time that we actually hear about them is from the late 8th century, uh, from the year 798, when we have a document written all the way over in Dublin, uh, from Tala there in modern-day Dublin, a martyrology, basically a, a calendar of, of, of days. And on one particular day, uh, we see a, a day set aside to a man named Sweeney, or Swivna in the Irish, of Skellig. And it's the first time that we see this word, Skellig, referring to this place anywhere in writing. Early in the ninth century, only a few decades later, later um, <clears throat> we had the Vikings coming here perhaps on about three or four occasions. Um, we know very little about their attacks, except that on, on one occasion, uh, the abbot here, whose name was Ekel, was carried away and starved to death by the Vikings, so the annals tell us. And we believe that the monks must have been here for about 500 years, that this site was the focus for a small group of a Christian ascetic monks from roughly around the 6th or 7th centuries up until the 12th. So quite a long period of time, obviously. And these monks obviously were not hermits. They lived together as a community. You can see that yourself. They lived in these cells around behind you, probably coming together into the oratory to pray together, maybe to say the offices of the day, uh, depending on, on what kind of rule was being followed here. Um, at times, the rule might have been very severe. You might have had a rule of silence here where you would have heard no voices at all except for the chanting of the scriptures or perhaps a few words from the abbot. Uh, at other times, it might have been much more lax. Uh, obviously, we're talking about a very long period of time, so practice must have changed from time to time. But the basic impetus behind coming to a place like this must have remained more or less constant. I am now standing inside the church, the second oratory on Skellig Rock. I'm reminded, gazing up at its beautifully cobbled roof, of Seamus Heaney's poem about a similar oratory on the mainland, Calaris Oratory. You can still feel the community pack this place. It's like going into a turf stack, a core of old dark walled up with stone a yard thick. When you're in it alone, you might have dropped a reduced creature to the heart of the globe. No worshipper would leap up to his god off this floor. Founded there, like heroes in a barrow, they sought themselves in the eye of their king under the black weight of their own breathing. And how he smiled on them as out they came, the sea a censer and the grass a flame. First of all, there's no spring on the island. There's no fresh water. They always had to catch rainwater. And we have plenty of that, of course, but they had to catch it. And um, 
it's quite easy to catch. You can hold a bucket underneath the bedrock there and it'll run into uh, your bucket over the course of a day, but they eventually brought it into the monastery for themselves. You might have noticed just over here, there's a couple of cisterns. There's one just underneath you here with about uh, 60 gallons of water. And I emptied about half of that yesterday, and you can see already just in the course of the showers overnight, it's filled up near the top again. Uh, there's another one over here with about 40 gallons, and it's same thing again. It's filled up a good bit since, uh, since yesterday evening, and we believe there was an even larger one outside. And it's just how the water was brought into the monastery. Um, for their food, we believe they did a number of things. They almost certainly cultivated parts of the island. Um, the next terrace just outside, which is supported by another large walled garden, um, has always been known as the, uh, sorry, another large walled um, wall there, um, has always been known as the monk's garden. And we have discovered in recent years that there were other things going on there. But it was quite likely cultivated too. It's a very sheltered place. Um, the soil is very fertile. We've grown vegetables there in recent years. It grew very well. Unfortunately, the rabbits ate all our vegetables, but uh, the monks didn't have to fight against rabbits. So they had a good place for growing things there, and probably in the valley halfway down. Um, the monks almost certainly kept animals here, too. If you were here 50 years ago, you would have seen uh, wild goats running around the island, left over from the days that the lighthouse keepers lived here with their families. Um, another hundred years back, you might have seen cows here on the island. They might have even come up the steps with you because um, the lighthouse keepers, once again, uh, kept cows here. So we know what it's possible to do, and the monks almost certainly kept them as well. And then, of course, they probably fished, and they built different ways down to the sea to get to their boats. Uh, they built the steps you came up, going down the southern side of the island, but they built more going down the northern side and more going down the eastern side. So they had three landings around the island. So if the sea was rough coming in from one direction, uh, they had other ways they could get in. So they used a lot of the island, uh, that's not quite so apparent when you just come out here for an hour or two. Uh, obviously, they were here for a long period of time, so they made their way. Now, come with me into an architectural rarity. Believe it or not, I am now entering, with some difficulty, the only beehive toilet. I did say toilet in this country, so Grillen Rourke assures me. Space enough, right enough, just for one person. And a gully down below, leads your waste to run off down to the sea. Here it is, a beehive toilet, just beside one of the oratories on Skelligvihil. A solitary place. In the 12th century, there were, there were big changes taking place in Ireland. The Normans came to Ireland. Uh, society was changing a good deal, and in particular, the church was. You had the big monastic houses from Europe and England beginning to come here, such as the Augustinians, the Cistercians, uh, the Benedictines, eventually. And they, they reorganized the church to a great extent. And the way of life of these little remote island monasteries really was becoming a thing of, pa of the past by then. We know that the Augustinians came into Ballinskelligs. Uh, just around the corner there, around Bolas Head. Some of you came from there. Some of your boats come from there, uh, even today. And the ruins of that abbey are still there on the beach. Sometime over the next century or two, uh, there was a shift from here into that abbey. We don't know exactly how it took place, but we do know that by about the 13th, 14th century, this site is listed as belonging to that community. We don't know... 
Alan Rourke has invited me to see something. As you know, we climbed up the 600 steps. So, just the way, the modern way of approaching Skellig And now, going down a different way. Which is a bit scary, to say the least. Same idea. Steps hewn out. He told me not to look back. It worried me, but he said, no, that's not, not for the reason you think. And don't look to your right either. Keep your eye on the steps. Well, and I've done what you told me. Now tell me, well, where are we? This is not, this is not the way I came up. No, it certainly is not the way you came up. But in fact, this is a very special way because this is probably the earliest way up to the monastery. We're actually just below the monastery on the east steps. And the east steps go all the way down to above the landing uh, where all the visitors come today. And that landing was put in, the pier was put in, in the 1820s by the lighthouse builders. So they blasted away the whole base of the east steps. So these were never used by the lighthouse builders because we know that they use the south steps and they use the north steps, the other two monk steps. And they actually modified some of those to improve them. They actually they added a, uh, a parapet wall to the north steps. So these steps are very important because we know they were never changed. So they, they reflect the, uh, the construction uh, of the monks. And where we are here is just below the monastery. We've come, all, well, we, ha we haven't, but we would have come up from the, from the sea up hundreds of steps up to this area here. Now when you look up, you actually see your approach to the monastery. Mm. And it really is quite impressive because oh, you yes. have this amazing... Now I know uh, why you told me not to look back. <laughs> you have this amazing wall uh, yeah. running the, the whole length of, really of, of, of your view uh, towards, the, towards the north. And in that then you have the original opening. So it's a very defensive, it's almost like entering a walled city. Fortress, and I, yes, I always yeah. think that when you're coming up it here, it's, like, city, it's almost like a mini Lhasa or somewhere yeah. like that. We have this huge big uh, wall, very defensive yeah. uh, looking. Uh, and then the stone uh, steps lead right up into this wonderful entrance which curves around and that has not been altered uh, si since since the monk's time. We, we did some uh, um, repair works, a lot of repair works along here. But when you look up straight, John, you can actually see this is the greatest extent of original monastic retaining walling, mm. absolutely superb walling. And all of these walls, even the small stones you see, aren't small stones at all. The stones themselves go right back into the wall and we're just seeing the ends of them. So some of those stones are a meter, 1.2 meters back into the wall. You can imagine the size of some of the big ones. And the actual, just trying to position all, all of that stone and uh, put the wall together was just an absolutely incredible feat. And of course, that's, as you said, some, many might have died in the process. I think it's quite possible that, that yeah. some people were lost. And certainly if you fall from a place like this, you look out on your left. I don't particularly want to look out. <laughs> well, if you did look out on your left, you'll see that there's nothing to stop you. You fall no, here, you'll actually, you'll actually fall all the way to the roadway, hundreds of feet below. Mm. But there is a certain amount of, isol of isolation here, but I think it's important to remember that we're inclined to think now of this place being so separate and so far away. But uh, people's lives on the mainland were 
not incredibly different to people to, to a monk's life uh, out here. Life was hard and very difficult. We're inclined to compare it with all of the ease that we have today. Coming into the entrance, it just shows to you how, how thick this retaining wall is. Well, it, it's, it's a couple it, of meters it, more. It, yeah, it, it, it shows you really how how. Uh, defensive the place is. It's just an absolutely enormously thick wall, incredibly solid. And here you've got these big pillars where the step occurs. And then behind that, you would you have these big uh, uh, holes into the wall where a beam would have gone by um, to close the entrance. So you probably would have had some form of perhaps an oak door here and then held in place from the inside uh, through through these openings on either side. Mm. And then you make your way up then and steps up into the lower monk's garden. That's the first place you come to. It's like you're coming up here mm -hmm. into the monk's garden. And this whole area is like a greenhouse because the walls themselves deflect the winds and the rock behind deflects the winds from the north. So you actually a you have a complete microclimate here and yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I couldn't believe we grew courgettes one year here and the, they were just absolutely enormous the sort of type of uh, would have won your first prize at the certainly would yes but it's, it sort of mimics a, a greenhouse um, now whether that was by design or just by chance mm -hmm. but uh, these gardens would have been very important for them in, in giving a supply of, of, mm. of food now obviously they probably couldn't have been completely self-sufficient they would have had to re rely on the mainland for grain and things like that for cereals but um, this garden is very interesting approaching sunset looking back across to the Kerry coastline Seamus Heaney's lines again the visible sea at a distance from the shore or beyond the anchoring grounds was called the offing. The emptier it stood, the more compelled the eye that scanned it. But once you turned your back on it, your back was suddenly all eyes like Argus's. Then, when you'd look again, the offing felt untrespassed still, and yet somehow vacated, as if a lambent troop that exercised on the borders of your vision had withdrawn beyond the skyline to manoeuvre and regroup. Let's let's go in briefly into uh, the, the the largest of what you call cell A. Yes, all the cells. Well, I suppose so. Uh, a long time ago, the cells were given these letters to distinguish them, and we've just everyone's kept the same uh, letters since right. to make it simple. A very very deep wall as you come in here. Yes, I had thought it might have been the abbot's cell. You know that, that because he was the abbot, he'd, he'd have a bigger premises. But uh, that's that's fanciful, I think. Is it? Well, w 
I think when you look at this cell, it's substantially larger than any of the other cells. It's also got a uh, different orientation. You'll notice that all the other cells face south and the doorways, I suppose, get, they get most sun into them and would help dry them out. This particular one has been positioned exactly opposite the large oratory. And I think it has a very, very special relationship, the two buildings together. And I would think that this building was a communal building. When you come inside, you can see how large it is. The other buildings have, are really very, very small. So we think that there was an upper level uh, in here. And it, a loft. Uh, yeah, a, lo uh, a loft, but not just a storage loft. It's obviously it was a place that the monks could go up into because if you look at this cell again, you've got four openings and none of the other cells have openings. These are like windows and you've one at this lower level and you've three at the upper level. Mm. And two of the windows at the upper level, one focuses on the south peak and the other one focuses on the little skelly. And this isn't just by accident. There are other features here too, uh, quite intriguing. There's a, um, what we might call today a built-in wardrobe. And a, well, you have, I suppose it's more press. maybe a built-in cupboard or a built-in press, probably the earliest of the built-in presses. But you have a double, uh, a double pre uh, press built into the wall. So this is part of the original conception mm. of the design of the building. And you have, behind us then we have a single one. And these are at, a, uh, at I suppose, a waist level mm. uh, for, for storing perhaps important uh, objects. But in addition to that, you've got these projecting stones and above a certain level, about a metre and a half, and then going up as far as you can reach or a little higher, you've got these uh, projecting stones and these come into the, in, into the space and from these you could hang things. So you could have, perhaps hang uh, various uh, uh, prayer books or uh, I I important documents which could be housed perhaps in a leather satchel and hung on a strap. I think what's important to remember is that the buildings we're looking at today are quite very sophisticated. When they came out here first, the first buildings were probably cruder and didn't survive, and they learned from that. So I think what you're seeing here is a, just, just a continuation of the learning process. And the buildings themselves, uh, they had developed by this stage a very, very sophisticated way of putting, of putting buildings together. Uh, I mean, it's absolutely incredible to think that this building is in absolutely perfect condition. Um, a state agent would love this. <laughs> well, for now, it's approaching 8 o'clock. It's uh, dusk almost, and the visitors have gone, the guides have gone, the workmen have gone for the day. And the place is, I suppose, as it should be, in, in, apart from uh, we two uh, interlopers. Um, it's, it should, it's in silence, apart from the, the, the odd call of the birds. And it's, it's really a time to to savour it as, it as it might have been. And I think we're very fortunate to be here on our own. It's, it's, a, very, it's a very special place, very different to when you have uh, quite a number of visitors here. It's a very, um, it's a very unique experience. Well, we'll make our descent. Now, on the way down, you've pointed out to me that uh, subsequent to the, the monks' time here, this place became a place, place of pilgrimage and of, of penitence. But the focus was not on the monastery, but on the, the dreaded South Peak. Yes, um, in fact, the, the site may have been developed after the monks left and were in Balanskelix. They may have developed the site as a place of pilgrimage in, in medieval times uh, and then later uh, into the 18th and early 19th century. And... Um, 
But by that stage, the focus, the, 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 the whole penitential route was not up to the monastery itself, but up through the island to Christ's Saddle. And then the focus went up to the South Peak. And you had to climb up at the South Peak through the Eye of the Needle, climb up to the very top. But that was only part of it. You weren't there when you got to the very top because at the very top there's a very strange silhouette which you can see very well now tonight. I preferred to look. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, which is called the Spit. Yeah. And it's a series of, of uh, rocks from the top that stick up, fall down and stick up again. And what you had to do was when you got to the top uh, for your penance, you had to go drop down crawl literally along the spit now from where we're looking it looks as if it rises but when you go up there and sit on that and you inch your way out on it over the rock like being on a horse and it falls away from you Uh, when we were doing our survey of the south peak and all the work we did i found going out to the very end of the spit really more frightening than all the survey work we did up there and you inch your way along, drop down again, and you came out to a stone, a standing stone, which in the, in the 1840s, uh, the, the first edition of the Ordnance Survey, the stone is called the Stone of Dawn. And that was a standing pillar stone. It wasn't decorated. It may not have been monastic at all. It may have been put there later on uh, during the pilgrimage time. But that uh, stone, uh, you had to go out to that and either embrace it or, or, or kiss or touch that stone. And that was a very, very hard thing to do. I think if you had, if you completed that penance, you were, I think, mm-hmm. probably free to do whatever you wanted for the rest because, of your life. Because with one small it step, it, 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 it didn't matter. It must have been one of the hardest things for anyone to do uh, on, on pilgrimage. One other thing, the, the colours. We've just been looking out over the sea. Now the sun has gone down and the clouds are rolling in towards the Kerry coast, but the actual the, 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 the shades of, uh, of beautiful browns and russets and almost tinges of gold on, on the on the water between here and just the far side of Little Skellig again is you just have to experience it. Yes, I I, I think. This is a place where uh, you really experience extremes of, of, of weather. It can, on a sunny day with blue sky, it can be incredibly hot out here. You could imagine, you close your eyes, you could imagine you're in the Mediterranean. Very, very hot. You have the, the landscape uh, is changing all the time with the clouds coming in, and the light is incredible. The light in the evening on the mainland, which you saw earlier, is just really very beautiful. But then you have the, the rough side of, of, of things here. I, I, was, I was out here with a, an archaeologist in, uh, during Hurricane Charlie mm. when uh, you couldn't get down the road. Uh, the, the seas were... Co- I couldn't believe it with my own eyes. The seas were coming over the road. It was incredibly dangerous, uh, right up to near where, our, where our, 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 our huts were. And what was really... I've never seen so much rainfall out here. And you know there's no water on the island. But the next morning, there were cascades of waterfalls all over the island. I've never seen it before, and I've never seen it since. But you do have extremes out here that you don't actually experience in the mainland. So that, I suppose, heightens your sense uh, of nat- uh, you know, the, the power, I suppose, and the diversity of nature. There's that wonderful account of it. Was it 1951 or so when the wave came over the top of the lighthouse? That's right. Like 52 metres up it actually, broke the window. It, it, it actually n- knocked out the light. Uh, I was in the lighthouse. One, in the beginning, we used to actually stay in the lighthouse when the lighthouse was manned and we operated from there. And I was there with the surveyor. We were. Uh, it, was a, it was a storm. We couldn't go out. It was in August, and one of the uh, a wave in August came up over the lighthouse, 
we were in the back room, hit the rock, and came in, the water came in the window. Now, that is very, very unusual. Now, the lighthouse itself is lower than where, where the, the lighthouse building is much lower than where the light is. But that was uh, in an August. So you really experience the power, the power of the sea out here, and have great respect for it. Last few steps. Back down. Back down the 600 steps. Dusk is rapidly falling. Nighttime approaches Skellig. The end of what has been a most amazing day, a most amazing experience. Indefinable experience. Skellig experience. On day two of my visit to Skellig, Grellen Rourke coaxes me towards the South Peak. More breathless recordings. And now, going up the south peak. No, I'm not brave enough, I think, to go all the way. Gwilyn Rourke has inveigled me part of the way. How far up are we now? Uh, we're not Gwilyn so far up. Of, <laughs> Pardon, we're only so far off. Really at the beginning. Oh, thank you. I uh, thought I was doing well. No, no. But Tell me again about these cuts you were mentioning. Well, you can actually, when you, when you look up ahead of you, the rock actually came down, joining the upper one, joining the lower one, and they quarried all that out. And you see all the nice rock cut steps? Yeah. They're all made by the monks. And as we, what, what I hope we're going to be able to do is we'll walk up there, go around that, and we come into a more open area. And we'll be walking on the monk steps, but also what's, what I'll show you as we go around is the wonderful little hand holes in the rock. So you have something to put your to hand as well. But in fact, this looks bad, but it's not. And when we go around the corner, it opens out, and then you have a, 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 an easy walk, and we can just look up towards the eye of the needle. Okay. And that'll give you, you know, an impression of the remainder, and we can talk about it then. You <laughs> say it looks bad, all right, all right. Thing to do, I think, is not to look to the left because it's a sheer drop of 100, 150 meters down there. Yes. Um, so onwards and upwards. I almost feel as if I've made it to the top and we're nowhere near it, but uh, negotiated that last passage very much thanks to the monks and their handholds. But at least we're now in sight of the eye of the needle through which scripture told us it was, it was difficult for a camel to get through there than to get to heaven or what was <laughs> anyway it is it is well named as a needle needle's eye but uh, it's not you've for me <laughs> well in fact i have to say john you've done very well because in fact in many ways psychologically what you've come through on that edge yeah. that's the worst part and it isn't, I'm not saying that to entice you up further yeah. but at least by, by getting this far you can actually see what a lot of the rest of the climb entails yeah. 
we came around a tiny little monk-made ledge where they've taken the rock back and they have these little handholds and footholds to get around. And that's actually quite the most horrible part because here you come out onto a little wider, I mean, it's, it's, it's much steeper, but you can see all the rock cut. You see the way they're almost cut in like horses' shoes into the um, rock. And that goes all the way up to one of these traverses. You climb up through steps there on the left on the right hand side, and you're actually onto originally a level um, terrace. Now, unfortunately, a lot of it's fallen away, as you can see. And that terrace brings you right into this kind of cleft in the rock, which is called the Eye of the Needle, or sometimes referred to as the chimney. And you climb up through that, and there are again uh, rock cut steps quite steep running up all the way to the top and what you do is you you kind of wedge your body between the rock on either side and lean against one side and then put your um, leg up and your foot into the next foothold and you haul yourself up all the way through that and then when you get up there there's another terrace and more of these kind of steep steps um, which we have below leading up to other terraces which eventually bring you to the top (laughs) I, I can see if I ever did make it, I would become a hermit and, and I wouldn't come back down again. But you can see how difficult it was to bring all this. I mean, so much of the stone and uh, soil had to be brought up uh, from below. And to, to actually get it up, even quarrying uh, these um, holes, uh, cutting them out of the rock, even to begin to make your uh, um, attempt uh, or ascent, um, but what's also interesting over in this part is uh, above the eye of the needle and, and on this level, you actually have, if you climb out on those ledges looking towards the kind of northwest and up above the eye of the needle, there are more of these kind of ledges. If you climb out there, you can actually see uh, the remains of little stone walls leveling up the ground to gain access to ledges on the far side. And that was clearly for uh, um, uh, to, to get birds' eggs and birds. Uh, so this is not part of the lighthouse construction at all in this, in, in this area. You're actually, uh, it, it's all monastic here. And that's very interesting because it gives a little, it, it gives a clue to their way of life. Right. But this is spectacular. I'd love to do it, but uh, not today. Or he would never forgive me if I lost their precious recording machines and <laughs> microphones. It's not a thing to be a thing to be attempted, certainly with encumbrances like that. Yeah, but I think I think even having come this far, John, yes. it does give you an impression oh, of the remainder of the climb. And I hope maybe not now, but when you get down, <laughs> you will say it was worth it. <laughs> yes, now comes the probably trickier part: getting back down again. There we go. Regrettably, the call has come to leave. We must leave Skellig Rock within the next hour. This has been a wonderful experience. Literally wonderful. Full of wonder. Skellig is so full of wonders, you can't experience them all on one visit. But I have been filled with wonders. Satiated for a while anyway. Hopefully, I'll come back to Skellig to savour more of its wonders. For now, I leave it in solitude to the birds and the rabbits 
and the beehive cells nestling against the rock and the hermitage balanced crazily over on the south peak. For now, it's Slán Lishkelig. The annals say, when the monks of Clonmacnoise were all at prayers inside the oratory, the ship appeared above them in the air. The anchor dragged along behind so deep it hooked itself into the altar rails, and then, as the big hull rocked to a standstill, a crewman shinned and grappled down the rope and struggled to release it, but in vain. This man cannot bear our life here and will drown, the abbot said, unless we help him. So they did. The freed ship sailed and the man climbed back out of the marvellous as he had known it.